Acts 4, beginning at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people, since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we thank you and bless you once again for the the privilege of not only being before your throne of grace, but Lord, for the privilege of having our Bibles open, your word open to our hearts and our minds. We pray that you would anoint, bless, and pour out your Holy Spirit upon us, that you would grant us your wisdom and understanding of this great passage. And it is our desire, Lord God, as your people, to speak those things that we have seen and heard. For you indeed have done great things in our lives. You've taken us from death into life. You've taken us from darkness into light. You've taken us from despair into your love and hope for eternity. For these things, God, we give you thanks and praise in the precious name, in that name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. Y'all may be seated. Back in chapter 3, we learn that Peter and John, the apostles, were making their way into the temple to pray. Along the way, they heard a man who was sitting there at a gate that is called Beautiful. A man who had been there most of his life, much of his life. A man who was lame since birth. A man who could only ask those who were going in and out of the temple each and every day for alms. Day in and day out, he would plead with the people for something that he might 
live, exist, eat, survive. Peter and John see this man and probably had seen him many times before, but now they're moved in their hearts to stop. Moved in their hearts certainly by the power of the Holy Spirit to stop and to to speak to this man who is expecting something from them. But Peter and John look directly into this man's heart and, and say to him, you look at us. And Peter says to this man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have I give unto you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And Peter does something that has to be the Holy Spirit, giving him that impetus to reach and, and, and take this man and to lift him up from that place where he had been sitting from that place where people had brought him to because he couldn't get there by himself. And everybody knew this because when they would see this man, they would see a man whose, whose limbs were all twisted. And yet Peter takes him and lifts him up. But at the very moment that he lifts him up, every bone, every muscle, every tendon, every sinew, everything that is inside of him that had been crooked at one time was now straightened out, straightened to the point that this man does something that he had never done before in his life, stands. He stands. I don't know about you, but we talked about this before when we studied that particular passage and uh, we as, as, as children, as we were growing up, we didn't have the power to stand ourselves. It took us a few months before we could even get our heads to look up, you know. The moment we had been born, we had been so dependent upon somebody turning us, picking us up, feeding us, doing everything. But along the way, we began to gain strength. And from that strength, we kind of lifted ourselves up until we could fall over. But this man, not ever having stood in his life, stands perfectly, completely, wholly healed. And not only that, but then he is taken so much by the thing that has happened to him that he begins to walk. And then he begins to leap. And in his walking and leaping, he praises God. And a man that was never allowed to go into the temple now walks in confidently with Peter and John to worship God. Well, this certainly attracts a number of people, thousands actually, of people who had walked in and out of that temple day by day through that gate and had seen this man who had suffered for so long and they began to wonder, wasn't this the man that used to sit at the gate called Beautiful every day asking for alms? We saw him crooked. We saw him lame. And now he's up perfectly healed, walking, leaping, praising God. What is it that has taken place? Peter takes the opportunity then to preach to them and to tell them who it was that healed that man. And he says to them, Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised up, this man stands before you healed because of him. It was Jesus that healed him. And people began to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. More than had before come to Jesus in the time of Pentecost when Peter preached then. 
And we would think this is a wonderful story. This is a wonderful thing that happened. All the people are beginning to see the power of God before them. But there was a, a slight problem. There were those who were called the Sadducees. There were those who were the priests and the captain of the temple. And then eventually the Sanhedrin would be involved in what was going on. And they were there, but they weren't exactly believing everything that was taking place here. As a matter of fact, they were, a problem. They were, they were, they were burdened by the problem that was before them. They saw it as a problem. And so they arrest Peter and John to inquire, to find out why this is going on. What is it that is taking place in our midst? You know, it's interesting and quite astounding to me that that a verifiable and visibly supportable healing and miracle such as that which was received by the lay man at the gate called Beautiful would cause such a refusal to submit to its veracity on the part of the Sanhedrin, which was the ruling council of the Jewish people. It caused a refusal to submit to the truth of what happened. I mean, these were the religious leaders of the people. These are the ones that you would say if things were happening because God was bringing them about, we should bring the people to worship this God. He is our God. He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Messiah has come. The Messiah is alive. The Messiah is doing all of these things because this is what they have proclaimed. But this is not what the religious, religious leaders were doing. Think about it this way. They were supposed to be the shepherds of Israel leading God's flock. But as they were proving, they cared a lot more about saving face than about saving lives and saving people. They cared more about man's opinion than about God's opinion. They cared more about what man had to say than what God had to say. That's pretty sad, isn't it? And this was something that Jesus had seen in his own earthly ministry. Jesus had seen this in the religious leaders of the day. We're told in Matthew chapter 9, verse 36, when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. And folks, there were religious leaders, but Jesus saw the people without religious leaders, without shepherds, without those who would lead them to God. Now, Peter had already made it clear to them that it was the Messiah of Israel. It was Jesus of Nazareth that had healed this man completely. You go back to verse 8 of this passage, it says, or uh, verse 8 of this chapter, and it says, And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. And so there was healing. And it was a confirmed healing. And it was a verifiable healing. And then the apostle goes a step further though. He goes a step further in pointing out to the rulers that this same Jesus, who they rejected, not only had the ability and the power and the authority to heal this man physically, but through his name, through the name of Jesus Christ, he was able to save this man spiritually for eternity. For in verse 11 it goes on to say, this is the stone, Peter says, this is the stone 
Speaking of Jesus, this is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. It is the name of Jesus Christ. And so healing took place. But what else took place? Salvation. The man who was never allowed to go into the temple now is standing and then he is walking and then he's leaping and then he's praising God and then he's entering the temple and he's worshiping the Lord who healed him and saved him. And folks, it is my earnest prayer and my earnest desire that we here today would not only know and accept this to be true, but would also with great expectation and with great hope experience healing and salvation in that precious name of Jesus Christ. That is my prayer for you today. We must never forget for even one moment that all that was happening since Pentecost was the working of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit that had been poured upon the church and that power continues to manifest itself in the church of Jesus Christ as long as we believe and trust in the Lord and in His Word and in His work. I believe with all of my heart that people that are here today that need healing, God can heal you. I believe that with all my heart. I believe that the same power that Jesus healed that that man 2,000 years ago, that that same power lives and exists with us today. Jesus still heals. Why should that change? You know why we know that it doesn't change? Because he who, who saved that man then can save today. How many of us are sitting here today because of the mercy of God, because of the grace of God, that he saved us from what we were and made us what we are today in Christ? That same power to save is the same power that can heal. We considered last time that the Sanhedrin recognized, they acknowledged the fact that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And, and, and you know, we, we, we want to continue to stress that point. They recognized something. They, though they considered them to be untrained and uneducated men, they said the one thing they had was they were with Jesus. They had been with the Lord. And I want to tell you that you need to be with the Lord. You need to be seen by the world as somebody who has been with Jesus. Were you with Jesus this morning before you came to church? I hope you weren't waiting to come here just to be with Jesus. I hope Jesus was with you from the very moment you woke up. Because that's really what we should have in our hearts every day. Is communion and fellowship with Jesus from the moment that we begin to open our eyes. The moment that we begin to wake up. I know some of you say, but I have to have my coffee first. No, way, just, you know, <laughs> it'll come. You need Jesus first. You need Him in the morning. You need Him in the m- middle of the day. You need Him throughout the day. You need Him at night. You need Him the moment you sleep. And then, you know what? You need Him when you're asleep. How wonderful it is to be wrapped around the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to know that with confidence. Because He said, I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Both Sanhedrin, they had recognized and acknowledged the fact that Peter and John had been with Jesus. And even though the apostles were, in their estimation, uneducated and untrained men, they had to admit that something of great great significance had taken place. But what could they say? 
They were looking at Peter and John. And by the way, if you look at the text in the Greek, you begin to realize that, you know, we, used to, we, we said, you know, before that, that they would uh, just call them un, uneducated, untrained men. Just stating the fact, because they were simple fishermen, lived up in the Galilee. They weren't considered to be real smart. They didn't, you know, they didn't probably, they probably didn't spend a lot of time with rabbis as, as those in the south down in Jerusalem did. But if you look at it more closely, they were actually ribbing them too with, with, with the words that they used. Calling them uneducated, which, which in, 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 uh, in the Greek it literally means illiterate. So they were illiterate men. But then that, that second word for untrained is the word that we have in the English today. It comes from that word that we have in the English today, which is the word idiot. <laughs> so they were being called idiots too. And yet, these illiterate and idiotic men were surrendered to the power of the Holy Spirit. And their boldness was something of a mystery to these religious leaders. How could these men be so bold? And how could they have such wisdom? They're just fishermen. Aren't you thankful that it isn't by our wisdom, our intellect, it is by the very power of the Holy Spirit that we come to know Christ and we come to understand the things of God? What could they say? Look at verse 14. And seeing the the man who had been healed standing with them, they could say nothing against it. We're talking about people, if, 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 we, if we just focus on the Sadducees alone, we're talking about people that didn't even believe in miracles. They didn't believe that, the, you know, in, in, in things happening like the supernatural. They didn't believe in the supernatural things. And what we discover in the next passage is that the rulers were not moved at all by Peter's sermon, nor were they moved by the miracle itself. Look at verse 15. But when they had commanded them to go out aside out of the council, in other words, they told Peter and John, get out of here for a, for a minute. They confirmed among themselves, or conferred, I should say, among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who, in, who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Look at this. They can't deny that this happened. A miracle has just taken place in front of them. It is verified It is a true miracle, and they cannot deny it. But then they say this, for indeed, uh, I should say verse 17, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them, that from now on they speak to no man in this name. Now you would think, this is God. This is the power of God. This is the work of God in the very temple of God, in the very city of God. This is God doing this. Wake up, open your eyes. But they say, no, we can't deny the miracle, but we've got to stifle the name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. I want you to notice that in verse 16, it says this, For indeed, that a notable miracle had been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Do you see here how they separated themselves from the people? I mean, they could have said, oh, listen, a notable miracle had been done through them. It is evident to all of us here. 
No, they separated themselves from the people. This is an indication of where their hearts were at, folks. Their hearts were not for the people. Their hearts were not to train the people, to love the people, to feed the people, to protect the people, to care for the people. Their hearts were far from that. They cared only about themselves. They cared only about their political and, and, and social interests. They did, not, they did not care about the people themselves. They separated themselves. That little statement itself separates them from the people. But then they say, we can't deny it. Not even the Sadducees could deny that a miracle had taken place, which shows the corrupt nature of their hearts. For how can you acknowledge that a great work of God has taken place and yet refuse to submit to the Lord who performed the miracle? I mean, that is the, that is a, the, the essence of, of total denial. They see the miracle, they know it's verified, and they yet, at the same time, they refuse to submit to the God who, who performed the miracle. That's heavy duty. It's all about the heart. Hey, listen, I'm sure you've heard people say that if if they could only see a miracle, they would believe. If I can just see this, I'll believe it. Sound familiar? I mean, we've probably heard somebody say something like that or something to that effect. Thomas said it. I see the nails and scars in Jesus' hands and his side, then I'll believe. He didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. But if I see the nail, then, okay. What did Jesus tell Thomas? When Jesus finally appears to them and Thomas is there, what does Thomas do? First of all, Jesus tells him, hey, look, Thomas, my hands, my side, come. Put your hand in there. What does Thomas do? Falls on his, on his knees before the Lord and he says, my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to him, Thomas, you believe because you've seen. Blessed are they who have not seen, yet they believe. That's you and me. I, I haven't seen the nail scars in Jesus' hands, but I believe they're there. And so do you. I hope you do. But people without Christ, people without the love of Christ, people without the Lord... Do they believe? Oh, they say, I'll believe if I see a miracle. No, they won't. That just isn't true. This group of rulers wouldn't believe. And the unbelieving person has the same nature as the Sanhedrin. And I say that of the unbelieving person today. Maybe even in this room. The unbelieving person has the very same heart and very same nature as that group of Sanhedrin who did not believe. You see, the problem is not a problem of the mind. The problem is the problem with a will and with the heart. That's where the problem is. It is the heart, you see. The Bible teaches us it is the heart that is desperately wicked. Jeremiah 17 verse 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. But what's important is what verse 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That is the heart of man who is separated from God. That is the heart of a person who is far from God. Born in sin. And by the way, each and every one of us was there. That's how we were all born, born into sin. Because of the sin of Adam. And so with this heart, 
We don't believe. But unbelief is not due to a lack of facts. Take note. Unbelief is not due to a lack of facts. It is the condition of the human heart. It is the condition of the human heart. You go all the way back to the fall of man, Genesis chapter 6. Of course, the fall of man was before this, but Genesis chapter 6, when the Lord now is going to destroy the worlds that he created because of the, of the sin of men. He says, the Lord, it says here, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you notice that it says the, that every intent of the thoughts of his heart? It doesn't say that every intent of the thoughts of his mind. It says that the thoughts of his heart. It is the heart of man that is sinfully wicked and desperately wicked. And so, with this heart, these Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, the ruling council, plot concerning the apostles. And who's among them at this point in time? Just as a note here, the layman was standing before them. But they plot nonetheless. Look at verse 17. They say, but so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them. You know, I, I kept thinking about that. Let us severely threaten them. You know, sometimes we get mild threats from people, you know. If you don't give me a hot dog, I'm going to run away from home. That's kind of a mild threat, you know. And then there's a little more, a greater degree of threat, you know, that can take place. But this is a severe threat. I mean, this, this, this means that it, it could, could be brought to life or death, you know, for them. But it's a threat nonetheless. Let me ask you a question. Is this not what the enemy does every day to us? He wants to threaten us severely, especially every time that we may fail, you know, as, as believers in Jesus Christ, or we stumble or we fall or we have our problems or we have our struggles. You know, the, the, the enemy wants to come after us and he just wants to you know, get us into this aspect of guilt and make us feel so bad that he, you know, that we, we just forget, and not so much forget, but just decide not to do anything for the Lord anymore. He severely threatens us. Oh, how can you be, you know, calling yourself a Christian? You know, you know I just get out of the church, you know, because, you know, you're, you're just so worthless. The Bible tells us that uh, the enemy goes about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but the cross tells us that that lion has no teeth. You understand what's happening here? The enemy comes after us, but he has no teeth. What is he going to do, is gum us to death? He has no teeth, he has no power. Why? Because Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and Jesus rose again from the dead, and he's alive. We have nothing to fear from the enemy. And Peter and John are standing before these people and they're severely threatening them. Remember, these are the same people who sent Jesus to the cross. But they're not afraid. They're filled with the boldness of the Holy Spirit in them. And they're just standing there watching this. You know, their hair may be going back with all the threats, but it's not bothering them one bit. Please understand, threats can do nothing. Our victory is in Jesus Christ. 
And Peter and John's victory was in Jesus Christ. And, and so they're saying, from now on, speak to no man in this name. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. That was the severe threat. How many people today feel that same threat? And you're told, you can't speak about Jesus. You can't talk about Jesus. Well, I mean, what about, the, well, you know, what, what, what about the separation of church and state? Get out of here. These people don't know anything about our government. They don't know anything about our Constitution. Do we not have the right to preach the name of Jesus Christ? I think so. I'm doing that now. I don't see anybody coming in to take me away. And even if they did, I'd keep doing it. And by the way, we ought not to put our head in the sand. There are people who are trying to change things in our country. To say that we can't, uh, you know, preach any longer uh, uh, certain things about certain sins, because then they would call that hate speech. Folks, it's not hatred that we tell people that they need to get out of their sins. It's love, because we don't want anybody to perish for eternity. We've got nothing to fear from threats. But let me put it back to the Sanhedrin and to the Sadducees this way. What do they have to fear? What did they have to fear about what Peter and John were saying? What was their desire in their decision? Were they desiring to protect the people and from what? You see, they weren't even, as I said before, they weren't even there for the people. But were they trying to, to protect the people from what? What did they not want spread among the people? Was it the news of the miraculous healing of the lame man? Was it that news that he was trying to keep the people from hearing? Or was it the doctrine and influence which Peter and John preached and brought to bear? You see, their fear, their fear, and remember again, they were the ones who put Jesus on the cross. They were the ones who tried Jesus unlawfully at night. Their fear was in the preaching of Jesus Christ, and this fear was rooted in their own self-interest. Weren't they the ones who crucified the Lord? And by the way, why is it that we find no attempt on their part to refute Peter's affirmation that Christ was risen from the dead? Have you seen that in the book of Acts? That they're ready to refute the affirmation that Peter said of Jesus rising from the dead? They had no proof. They had no solid evidence. But Peter and John did. They said, we've seen him. We've been with Him. We're eyewitness testimonies of His resurrection. We have eyewitness testimony. We have seen the risen Lord. And this risen Lord is the reason that this man stands before you here healed and complete. How often in the past few years, and by the way in the past few months as well, have people tried to refute the resurrection only to fall so short? We've all seen those documentaries on TV. Oh, we found a box. It had names on it. Here's the name of Jesus right here. Every house on the block had a person named Jesus in their house. Yeshua, Joshua. Oh, but then there's the name of Mary, Miriam, 
Oh, well, yeah, that's true because every house on the block had a, had a person named Miriam in that house too. Those were very common names. You don't prove anything by that. What we have is testimony written down, surviving thousands of years to let us know that those who saw Jesus buried also saw him rise from the dead. What more do you want? I mean, the reason there are unbelievers is not that they have evidence to the contrary. They just don't want to believe. They just don't want to believe. Now, if the Sanhedrin would have been able to prove otherwise, if they had had solid evidence that they, they had the body of Jesus or they had, they had the bones of Jesus or whatever, or they, they, just, they had this proof, if, if, if they had had that proof otherwise, how quickly that young movement would have collapsed into oblivion. Christianity would not have existed beyond those days. But here we are today, proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Here we are today, proclaiming the life of Jesus Christ. Here we are today, proclaiming the power of Jesus Christ in the person and work of the Holy Spirit today. Why? Because He's alive. And His Word is with us. And His Word is true. And His Word does not contradict itself. Jesus dealt with the Pharisees about this in John chapter 5. We see in verses 39 and 40. He says to them, you search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me. In other words, these scriptures testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me. Do you see that? Jesus tells it straight out to their very heart. You are not willing to come to me that you may have life. You think you have life just because you know the Scriptures. You know, I know people today, they know the Bible backwards and forwards, but they don't know Jesus. That's a big difference. I know people that, you know, they're just getting into the Word of God. They're starting to learn. They're starting to grow. But what they have more than anything else is their, their love for Christ and their knowledge of Christ and their personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's what each and every one of us in this room needs is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he is available for that personal relationship. He has even invited us into that relationship when he said, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come to me, he says. He doesn't say go here, there, or everywhere. He says, Come to me. Personal relationship. You're not willing to come to me, he says. To the Pharisees. You think that in the word, by your knowledge of the word, you have life. He says, but you don't come to me. And you're not willing to come to me. Before we move on, consider one more thing from this passage. How did Luke, and this is referring back to verse 15. How, how did Luke get his information concerning the Sanhedrin's decision to confer among themselves? You know, because that's a very important detail here, you know. That these guys say to the, you, Peter and John, you know, step aside. We're going to confer among ourselves. How does Luke get this kind of information? Remember, Luke wasn't there at the time. Luke had to do certain, uh, certain things to gather this research together, to gather this information together. Well, it is thought by some that the information may have been given to Luke by 
Nicodemus, a person who knew Jesus. He had been a, a, actually a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin and would have known that these things would have happened. So it is possible that, that Luke might have received this information from Nicodemus. But consider that it also could have come from someone else. It could have come from one very young member of the Sanhedrin at that time. Somebody who was very familiar with one of the priests named Gamaliel, one of the rabbis that uh, was a teacher of that time. A young rabbi himself from a place called Tarsus, whose name was Saul. I mean, this is also very possible. And should this be true, then even Saul himself would not have known that God was working in his heart and life through Peter and John. Interesting thought, isn't it? The apostles themselves would, would have had no idea that they were preaching to a future apostle whose name would later be Paul. Interesting thought, isn't it? Could the Lord be using us in the same way? Could the Lord be using us as we go forth and tell people about Jesus and, and just lead them to Christ, lead them to the love of the Lord, lead them, to, lead them to salvation in Jesus Christ? Could we be, in effect, bringing the next great evangelist for the end times to the Lord? We don't know, do we? But it's an interesting thought which should encourage us more and more to tell people about Jesus Christ. Because I can tell you this, great evangelists and great preachers don't come off of trees. You don't just pluck them down from trees, you know. They started where we started, being unbelievers, being far from God. And yet God brought them into that place where they received the word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. They had to receive the same information we're getting here today. They had to receive it just like we're receiving it today, just like we received it however many days, months, or years ago that we received Christ? Could we, when we tell someone about Jesus, be nurturing the next great evangelist? It's quite possible. And this brings us to the reason why I've entitled the message, Our Mission in This World. Our Mission in this world. I mean, certainly our mission is outlined by the Lord Himself in that great commission found in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 and following, where it says, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. <laughs> that's the Great Commission, isn't it? That's, our, that's part of our mission in this world. But I want you to consider something. Consider, if you will, Peter and John's response now to the Sanhedrin's command not to preach in the name of Jesus. Consider it as that being applicable, our applicable mission in this world. Their response. Notice, if you will, in verse 19. But Peter and John answered and said to them, Now remember, what did they tell them? Speak no longer in the name of Jesus. So what is their response to that? Here it is. 
whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. But here in verse 20 is our mission in this world. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. That is our mission in this world. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So, when they had further threatened them, that's all they could do to them at this point. So when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. And remember, they were afraid of the the multitude of people that had come to faith in Christ. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. But what Peter and John said to the Sanhedrin, in effect, is this. And listen carefully to what, what they said in effect. In so many words, this is what they're saying to the Sanhedrin. Listen. If worldly care and caution and a consideration of our secular interests would undeniably persuade us to obey you, well, who knows? (laughs) But acting as before the living God and in obedience to His very own command, should we dare to hold our tongues? We have received our authority from God through Christ and persuaded fully of the truth by the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. We would be guilty of treason against God should we hold back our testimony. Isn't that a tremendous thought that this is really what they're saying to the Sanhedrin? We cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. Our very mission in this world is also stated simply in the next chapter. We haven't even gotten there, but I'm going to study this one verse with you. It's stated profoundly in chapter 5, verse 29. And look at that verse. We're getting ahead of ourselves just a little bit. We'll come back and look at it again. Because it's that important. When the apostles now are are being held with a little bit more intensity of persecution and threat of persecution, notice that Peter and the other apostles answered, this and said we ought to obey God rather than men that is our mission in this world we ought to obey God rather than men you see now why it is important for for us to look at that as our mission in this world because when the apostle says we cannot but speak they were saying wholeheartedly that they must speak of the things which they have seen and heard. We must speak. We cannot be silent about this. We cannot hold our tongues about this. We have to speak what we have seen and heard. And they did so not only because of the inner compulsion of the Holy Spirit that was in them, but because of Christ's command to them. What was that command? Acts chapter 1 verse 8. We all know it. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me. In other words, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Well, where were they? They were in Jerusalem. This is just getting started here. They are, they are just beginning to obey Jesus in preaching the gospel to all the lands by starting in Jerusalem. And what we need to understand here is that Peter and John did not originate the message. The twelve apostles did not originate the message. The disciples that came after the apostles did not originate the message. The 120 that received the Spirit on the day of Pentecost did not originate the message. 
Those great uh, uh, saints of the faith down through the ages, through all of the ages of the church, did not originate the message. We in this place did not originate the message. We are simply to speak the things which we have seen and we have heard. What? What Jesus Christ has done for us and to us and with us. We are no longer the same that we were before we came to Christ. Are you? If you're the same that you were before you came to Christ, you didn't come to Christ. Would we be able to say what a blind man said facing certain judgment from the Pharisees? You all know the story in John chapter 9. Jesus healed a blind man. Blind since birth. In a very unique way, he healed him. But when the man opened his eyes, Jesus wasn't there. So he didn't know who healed him. Just knew that somebody did this and, and healed him. But then you started getting around to the critics and... No, to the Jesus watchers, not the good Jesus watchers, but the bad Jesus watchers, the Pharisees and all, you know, the scribes and all those who were always in opposition to Christ. And they began to interrogate this man. And then they began to try to, you know, find out if, if, if this was a verifiable miracle, you know. So they, they went and asked the parents, but the parents were afraid of them. Uh, let me bring this up in John 9, verse 19. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who, who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? And his parents answered them and he said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees? We do not know. Or who opened his eyes? We do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. His parents said uh, these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had agreed already that if anyone confessed that Jesus was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Evidently, they must have known that Jesus healed their son. And so they were kind of just claiming ignorance here and say, well, uh, ask him. He can speak for himself. He's not a mute. He's just, he was just blind. He can speak for himself. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age. Ask him. So they again called the man who was blind and said to him, give God the glory. We know that this man, speaking of Jesus, is a sinner. And the man answered and said this, he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. At this point, he didn't know. So he's being honest. And he says, whether he's a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I know, that though I was blind, I now see. Now I see. I was blind once, but now I see. That's what I know. And he says this in threat of judgment. I was once lost now I'm found I was blind now I see years and years later a great hymn writer named John Newton after having experienced a tremendous conversion to Jesus Christ would write a hymn that every one of us knows every one of us have heard even unbelievers play the, the song I know Back in the 60s, I used to hear, what's her name? Judy Collins, a singer. It's hard to say that she believes in the Lord, but she sings a song. You know what it is? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, 
But now I see. From this very statement of this blind man, who now sees, we make a great declaration. The things that we speak are the things that we see and hear. What is that? When I look in the mirror, I don't see the same person. That used to be a degenerate sinner 30-some years ago. What I see now is a person saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. I cannot but speak but what I see and I hear. I hear not the words that I used to say in ignorance and frivolity and in ugliness and perverseness. Now I hear something different. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above. Ye heavenly host, praise Father, Son, Holy Ghost. What has God done for you? Are you ready to say, I cannot but speak what I, the things that I see and I hear. What God has done to me. Was God, what God has done for me. What God has done through me. What God is doing now. And what God is doing for me when He comes again. I was once lost. But now I'm found. Once I was blind, but, but now I see. Is this your testimony? Then this is your mission in this world. That you cannot but speak the things which you have seen and heard of what God has done through His Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, while the religious leaders were completely unmoved by an evident miracle of God, they had to respond to the opinion of the crowd. In verse 21, and we'll close with this, so when they had further threatened them, they let them go. They let Peter and John go, finding no way of punishing them because of the people since they all glorified God for what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. It was verifiable. This man was healed. He was standing and walking and leaping and praising God. And it, it was impossible otherwise. God had not only healed this man, He saved this man. So let me give you the rundown. And where it ends. A man is healed and saved. Peter is given another opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Many more people come to believe in Jesus. Thousands actually. He preaches to the leaders of the Jews. The antagonistic inquisitors confirm a wondrous healing. They confirm it. We cannot deny it. The enemies of Christ are brought to confusion. Isn't it great to know that when we stand on the Word of God, when we stand on it and we speak the truth of God, the enemies are confounded. The enemies of God are confounded. The apostles are bolder than ever before. That was also something that confounded them. And in all of this, in this whole scenario, in this whole picture, in this whole story, in all of this, God is glorified. 
You see, that's where it ends. But that's where it begins. It ends in God's glory. It begins with God's glory. What begins with God's glory should end in God's glory. It is God who is to get the glory for this man's healing. Peter and John never wanted to take any credit. They didn't take any credit. They said, this Jesus, whom you crucified, whom God has raised from the dead, this man stands before you whole because of him. They glorified God. The people glorified God. But the religious leaders, they didn't glorify God. They wanted to stifle the name of Jesus Christ. But the people glorified God for all He had done. Let this be our desire today. To glorify God for all He has done for us. How best do we glorify God For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. You know, when you speak, you've got to open your mouth. This is not duct tape theology, folks. Too many Christians put that duct tape. No say. Open your mouth and say, Jesus Christ, save this creature. It was Jesus Christ who died for me. It was Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. It was Jesus who shed His blood for my forgiveness. I stand before you healed because of Jesus Christ. Healed from the sins of my youth. Healed from the sins of my life. Healed from the sins of, uh, uh, that I carried into my, uh, into my adult life. But I am healed from them. I am saved from them. I am kept from them because of Jesus Christ. Once I was lost, but now I am found. I was blind, but now I see. I want us to believe. Let us believe in His power to heal today. Let us believe in His power to save today. If you've never prayed to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, don't leave here without saying to Jesus, Lord, forgive me of my sins. Lord, I I have sinned against you mightily. Forgive me of my sins. I know that you came to die for me on the cross, and and, and yet when you shed your blood for the forgiveness of my sins, I I, I didn't realize that. But but now I believe that you have risen from the dead. I I can speak to you, and I, I desire to have this personal relationship with you. God is good to save to the uttermost those who will call upon him. Believe in His power to restore. Some of you Christians today have fallen so far from the Lord. You need to be restored today. There is power because of His love to restore you to right living and right walking. And there is power to strengthen in the Lord. Some of us feel weak in this world today, this world that is, that is just marked by sin and wickedness and evil. And, and, and I mean to tell you, man, when, when we got people dying across the seas and the most important story is Paris Hilton, you know, we're a sick society. Aren't we sick? I mean, isn't the society itself just sick? And what's even worse is not so much that people are dying in other lands, People are dying around us and going into hell for eternity separated from God. And this is the most important thing people want to talk about. 
We need God's strength to endure to the end. So that when we look up, when Jesus said, look up, your redemption draws near, so when we look up, we can see Jesus. I don't want you to hang your heads. Psalm 3 says that he is the lifter of our heads. Don't hang your head. The Lord says, give me your problems. Give me your sin. Give me your guilt. It's mine. I already died for it on the cross. Give it to me. When you take this bread right now, we're a little late, but when you take this bread, when you take the cup, if you have something that you need to be healed from, ask the Lord with faith. I truly believe God wants to heal you this morning. I truly believe God wants to save some of you from the life of sin that you've been living. I believe that God wants to restore you and bring you back to walk in his path. And I believe he wants to strengthen all of us for the days in which we live. Let's pray.